One of the things that happens in a local body that will devote itself to the gospel is eventually there's just great benefits that come from that uh, for everybody. One of those benefits is our music worship. Music worship is always a reflection of what you believe about Christ and what you believe about the gospel. And that last song we sang um, was written by Sam and Darren. And um, we're, we're going to see more of that because the gospel is so important to us. Well, just a little insight into the uh, life of a preacher. It's a weird life. Sometimes I wake up in the morning and go, what am I doing? This is an odd place to be, but it is a calling and I can't do anything else, which is good because I'm not good at anything else. But this is a, it is a calling. And, and one of the things that preachers talk about with each other and, and that I think about all of the time is what we're actually trying to do. And what we're actually trying to do from the pulpit, and, and the pulpit is the center of the, the, the church, is we're trying to mold and shape the hearts of our beloved congregation. We're trying to create change. And it's the, the idea of sanctification and carving and forming. It's been said that preaching is like taking lumps of clay each and every week and forming them to be a little bit more like Christ, to look like the Lord Jesus. This is what Paul said to the churches of Galatia. He said he was, quote, in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. It means that there's an effort, there's an exertion, there's a determination, there's a struggle even to see people conform to the image of Christ. Now, of any illustration on planet Earth, I'm probably most hesitant to say anything is like childbirth because all of you ladies are going to say, you don't know what you're talking about, buddy, at all. So I'm just quoting Paul, but his, his point is well taken. He was speaking to churches that he had planted, he had invested in, but they'd forgotten much of what they'd been taught. They'd slid back into legalism, into the human effort in salvation. And so Paul opened his letter to the Galatians in very uncharacteristic fashion in that he came out with just both guns blazing. He says at the very beginning, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you to the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then in chapter four, right after saying that he's been in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in them, he says, I'm perplexed about you. You're a mystery to me. Well, why is this? Well, because they'd forgotten the grace of God. They'd forgotten grace. And their salvation was a free gift from God wrought by Jesus Christ at the cross. And now they're trying to earn it once again. And it was a mystery to them. And so in the spirit of that travail of childbirth, of effort, of exertion, we want to be obedient to the call of Christ to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be formed into his image, to be made more and more like our Lord, because of God's grace. And to use the metaphor of clay, one area of our Christian life that seems to have the hardest clay sometimes is the area of Christian giving, the area of being pliable and giving to the Lord out of a sense of joy and, and love. And so as we're really getting rolling now in our Joyful Generosity Capital Campaign it really is just a means by which we can do a, a heart check on ourselves and perhaps be molded a little bit more into the image of Christ. And so we've simply begun examining the reasons that we give. 
Last time we said that we give because of God's ownership. We saw from Psalm 24 and Psalm 50 that God owns everything. So we really have no rightful claim on anything at all. We are simply stewards. Now that was a a broad general look at God's ownership over all things, but it wasn't really personal. Well, today we're going to get very personal. We're going to get very real. And a large part, today is the message which explains the subtitle of our building campaign, Joyful Generosity, Responding to God's Grace. That, that's what it is. And so our second reason to give that we'll examine today is give because of God's grace. Now, what would we say is a definition of grace? I think we could simply say that it is God giving you salvation from sin when you didn't earn it and you didn't deserve it. It is God giving you salvation from sin when you didn't earn it and you didn't deserve it. And so to examine giving because of God's grace, we really need to spend the bulk of our time examining God's grace, examining his grace together. And I thought that since we're thinking about heart attitudes toward money and giving, we should go to a text that has both heart and grace and money all thrown in there together in the context of God's gracious offer of salvation. So look with me at Matthew chapter 19, and we'll begin in verse 16. This is a very familiar story to you. It's the story of the rich young man. He's called in Luke's gospel, a ruler. And we'll observe this account together. and We'll see how it fits into giving because of God's grace. Because this entire message this morning is really going to boil down to one main point. And mark that. We're just going to do one main point at the end. But I'll tell you what the point is not. Just so we can clear up this misunderstanding. The point is not... We should be as generous as Jesus wanted the rich young man to be. That's not the point. Maybe you've heard a sermon from this text on that. I'm sorry for that. That misses the whole reason for this episode in the ministry of Jesus. Now, this is a fascinating story. It has twists, it has turns, it has surprises in it. And so we'll let the story unfold and we'll organize our thoughts around the surprises. But the surprise isn't very effective if I tell you what it is up front. So what I'm going to do is just number them for you and then we'll reveal them as we go. So, unnamed surprise number one. Unnamed surprise number one. Follow along with me in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Uh, Just a little background here. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem for the last time. He is months away from the end of his his ministry, maybe even sooner than that. He is about to die. He is about to be resurrected. Mark chapter 10 tells us that he was on the road to Jerusalem in the region of Perea on the east east side of the Jordan River. He'd been ministering to the people there and he's, he's getting ready to head toward Jerusalem. And it shouldn't be lost on us that this event is recorded in all three synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's, it's important, but it's not a parable. Jesus did teach in parables, but this was a real-life conversation, a real-life instance orchestrated by God as a key part of the ministry and the teaching of Jesus. And as we walk through it, you can hear how quickly Jesus has answers to the questions that this man's going to give him. Why? Because he's looking at his clock. Oh, rich young man should be here in about five minutes. I already know it's going to happen. I'm omniscient God. And he has the answers for him. And so... This is, this is a, a very important story for us because it tells us the nature of what it means to be saved. Now, Mark's gospel tells us that this young man came running up to Jesus and knelt down before him. 
There's an eagerness, there's an enthusiasm to see Jesus. And just so you know, when you called somebody a young man, that generally meant between 20 and 40. So if you're 39, you're still a young man. You're 41, too bad. That's, that's biblical. But this man, we know, was young enough that his knees didn't pop when he came and ran up to Jesus. So he's a young guy. He's eager, there's an enthusiasm, and he's humble. He comes with a, at least a show of humility, From the other accounts, we know that he was a ruler and that he was wealthy. We don't see it until verse 22 here about his youthfulness and his wealth. What kind of ruler was he? Really, narrowing down all the options, the very best option that scholars pretty much all agree on is that he was the ruler of a synagogue, that he was a leader in the religious life of that particular synagogue. He didn't have to be a scribe, didn't have to be a Pharisee. He could simply be a layman who was an influential, wealthy citizen. He had shown a great fastidiousness and devotion to the law of God, so he was a logical choice. And he was younger than the average synagogue ruler. And because he had earned such wealth already and was younger than the average synagogue ruler, this would make him really, in the eyes of his fellow Jews, an absolute smashing success. He had achieved a high position religiously already, He had achieved great wealth in a relatively short period of time. He was a moral man. He had a sense of obeying the law of Moses. He was respectful. He's on his knees before Jesus and calls him teacher. But something's missing. He's achieved so much religiously and socially and financially, but he still believes that he has some lack. Something's not quite in place to secure him that place in the kingdom of God that he desires. And so he asks Jesus, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? Well, Jesus immediately diverts his attention from that question. He he diverts his words immediately from the man and draws his attention to God, to the divine standard of goodness, to put God in a different category instead of this man in a different category. Verse 17, and he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, Keep the commandments. So Jesus is asserting that really only God can do what is good because only God is good. And he's challenging the notion that this man could do anything at all to please God. He's, he's beginning to, to eat away at that false foundation. And so now that Jesus plays to the man's weakness, and in our vernacular, what we might say is he gives him just enough rope to hang himself with. So he says to him, okay, keep the commandments. That's what you have to do. Now, obviously, in comparing Scripture with Scripture and all the rest of the preaching of Jesus, Jesus is not saying, if you would only keep the law of Moses perfectly, then you can be saved. That's not going to happen. And in fact, the man himself didn't even believe that because he thought he was a law keeper, as we'll see, but something's still missing. But now Jesus is speaking his language in in the place that the man is comfortable Jesus said, keep the commandments. And in verse 18, he said to him, which ones? Which ones? The implication is, hey, I'm up for that challenge. I can do that. I want to find out which ones are really important to you. Let's see if we're on the same page here. And so in verse 18, he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus immediately had the answer to his questions, and so 
he rifles off the 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, and 5th commandments and throws in Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself for good measure. Now, why those particular commandments? Well, all of them have an outward observable behavior. There's something that everyone can see. It has to do with the interactions and the relationships that you have among your own people. But this stumped this guy because in his own mind, he really had this taken care of already. Verse 20, the young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Well, obviously he had a self-righteousness problem, but I think we usually make too much of that. I don't think that's the point of this story because in his mind, he had pursued the Lord. He had pursued right relationships with the people around him. But I don't think the point Jesus is trying to make is that you're, a, you're self-righteous, although that's certainly in play here. The point is, is that the man has come to the right conclusion. He's already figured it out. In his mind, he has kept the law and yet it's not enough. Something's still missing. Something's lacking. He doesn't have what it takes to enter the kingdom of God. He's not there yet. He knows he's not yet part of the kingdom. He hasn't attained to eternal life. In his mind, he has kept the law. So in his self-righteousness and his his self-made success, the only conclusion he can come to is found in this first question. What good deed, what great spiritual wonder can I perform? What one last thing can I do to really push me over the edge into the kingdom? There must just be one big thing. But Jesus frustrated him and answered, keep the law. Which of course the man couldn't do because the law is used by God to point out our sinfulness when we fail to keep it. But in the man's mind, he has kept the law, yet he's still falling short, meaning that Jesus is telling them something shocking, which is our first surprise. You have nothing to offer God. You have nothing to offer God. Surprise, rich young ruler. You may own a lot of stuff, but you have nothing I want. You still lack. Now, as we're going to see in a moment, if anyone in Israel was going to come close to pleasing the Lord enough to enter the kingdom to eternal life, it would have been this man. The man's not a liar. He's just self-deceived in that he genuinely believes he is keeping the law and no doubt he gave it his best shot. And if you asked any of his friends and neighbors, does this man keep the law? They probably would have said, yes, he does. He's a nice guy. He gets along with people. He's a religious leader. He's a community leader. He's a financial leader. Undoubtedly, he's he's a property owner. And so his question is, man, I've checked off all the boxes, the law. I've got money. I've got standing in the community. What else is there? I'm still falling short. What do I still lack? Because basically, Jesus basically said, you have nothing I want. You have nothing I want. Well, that brings us to our unnamed surprise number two. Our unnamed surprise number two. Number one was you have nothing to offer God. Unnamed surprise number two. Now, Jesus puts his finger right on that one thing that is preventing the man from entering the kingdom. He finds this man's one undisclosed, hidden, secret sin. And so Jesus gives this man two commands. Now, what did this man just tell Jesus about the commandments of God? When God gives me a command, I do what? I obey them. I keep all the law. So Jesus is going to test him. I'm just going to give you two really easy ones. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. His first command, 
sell your possessions, give your money to the poor. He probably could have set up a couple of dozen families for life. He could have done that if he wanted to. And the second command, break completely with your current lifestyle. Totally make it a clean break. When Jesus said, follow him, he didn't just mean metaphorically to be a follower of Christ. He means, come with me, go on the road with me. And by the way, where are we headed? We're headed to Jerusalem so I can die. So come with me, drop what you're doing. This would mean immediately walking away from his position in the synagogue. It would mean taking the the rest of that day or a couple of days to liquidate his entire fortune, to sell his lands, maybe visit some poor families and make all their dreams come true. You notice that Jesus didn't say something. He didn't say, why don't you pray about following me for a couple of weeks and get back to me? He just said, follow me now. And if he would do these two commands, then he would have treasure in heaven. He would receive his request of eternal life. Now, someone might say, that's a ridiculous request. God never asks us to give up everything. No one would ever actually do that. You know, there's a man who did in the Bible. In this same book, in chapter 9, we see the story of a rich tax collector seated in his tax booth. You know what that means? It means he's literally surrounded by piles of money. He's literally surrounded by all this money. And what did he do? As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, I have this picture in my mind of what that looked like. But we do know one fact. And that is that Matthew literally left piles of money. And so the picture I have in my mind is of Matthew joyfully following after Christ and they're walking down the road together with maybe some of the others and behind him there's dust then there's men diving into the booth and people punching each other in the face and grabbing money and coins going everywhere and little kids crawling around under the wagons and grabbing coins as Matthew walks off into the sunset with Christ having left it all behind so what would this rich man do verse 22 when the young man heard this he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He went away sorrowful. It's a word that literally means grieved and distressed because Jesus touched the one thing he would not give up, the one area he would not obey. Now listen, this request by Jesus is not about being poor to be godly. It's not that money is inherently evil or that you even must perform some sort of giant act of benevolence to please God. What it is about is the second surprise And the second surprise is that God insists that you give up all your idols. God insists that he give up, that you give up all your idols. He will not share you with anyone. Remember that the young ruler asked the Lord, which commands? In other words, I think I got this covered because outwardly I can obey anything. I'm good at this. And so Jesus gave him an answer in his all-knowing nature, which the young man thought he could pass with flying colors. He gave him enough rope to hang himself on. He, he basically then answers Jesus, hey, this is great. I've kept all those since I was a kid. I know this backwards and forwards. I'm going to pass this test. But when Jesus said, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me, did you know this before that Jesus started with the 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, and 5th commandment? By giving this second command to sell all he has and follow Christ, he read to him the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And in that first commandment, not only did the young man fail, but he failed to repent. 
double failure. Earlier in Matthew, Jesus preached in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The man had made a God of his wealth and when faced with the opportunity to make a choice, he would not forsake his God. And Jesus exposed the fact that out of the 613 laws in the Old Testament, the man was willing to receive and obey 612 of them, just not the first one. Jesus gave the man the answer to eternal life. Not be poor, but get rid of your gods. Get rid of your gods. Repent of worshiping that which is not God. And Jesus gave him the answer to the question that had been haunting him. And the question is, what must I do? And he he had the answer. It was right there with him. Uh, What could he have done? He could have turned around, undoubtedly he had servants with him. He could have turned around and said, here's the key to my house. Go home, take a million bucks for yourself, and then go distribute everything everything I have. Sell it all, give it away. And, oh, and by the way, Jesus, how do you, how do you guys do? Are you okay? Or do you need any food or anything? Because right now I'm rich. In about five minutes, I got nothing. And tell him, go away to his servant. And Jesus, here I come. Where are we headed next? That's all he had to do. And he would have shown true living faith in our Savior. All he had to do was come to Christ by faith. Getting rid of his money wasn't earning salvation. It wasn't a good work to achieve God's favor. It was merely proof that the true living God was the only God in his life now. I can't fathom the fact that that man was one moment from heaven and he will burn in hell for all eternity because he couldn't trade a few decades with a lot of trinkets for eternity with treasure in heaven he couldn't make the trade the world instinctively is self-righteous because of our fallen sin nature and so we we tend to think of ourselves as good and being able to please god with good things but then the self-righteous person is faced with these two surprises you have nothing to offer god god insists that you give up your idols that brings us to our third unnamed surprise the prosperity gospel was not invented in the 20th century It is destructive. It's spiritually catastrophic today, though. It's widely successful. And the reason it's so successful, I I think, is because it, it plays into the human ego. It plays into our arrogance. Because basically, the prosperity gospel says that God wants his people to be healthy and especially to be wealthy and that that is a sign that you belong to him. If you have much, you are clearly a child of God. Well, the prosperity gospel is nothing new. It is an effective deception, and Satan is not one to to throw away something that works. And so he uses it over and over again. It's fed by our natural selfishness. It's fed by our belief in our own legend. And so Jesus astonishes the disciples, and he destroys the spiritual logic that was common to the Jews that we today call the, the prosperity gospel. But the Jews commonly had a logical progression that if you were extremely wealthy, that was a sign that God approved of you, that he prospered you in all of your affairs, that the wealthy one that would be the one most certain to enter the kingdom. And so who in human terms will be most likely to enter the kingdom? This young man, he's got religious position. He's got community position. He's loaded with money. 
He's got property. Everybody likes him. And on top of that, he's, he's a nice guy. He's a law keeper. Of course he's going to heaven. Of course he's part of the kingdom. And Jesus blows this out of the water. Verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It seems to be a unique temptation to the wealthy to continue worshiping their wealth based on their cultural belief that a man like this rich young ruler is the most likely candidate to go to go to heaven to please God. These disciples are absolutely flabbergasted. Verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? In other words, if that guy isn't worthy of salvation, who is? Who is? We can't attain to that. Now, verse 24, the camel through the eye of the needle, that has been for centuries the verse that preachers use to amaze and astound their congregations. And in doing so, they can inadvertently proclaim a false gospel. And so let's clear that up. There are several ways this often goes, which all have one fatal flaw. One way it goes is that the Greek word for camel is a misprint because it's very similar to the Greek word for rope. And so what Jesus is actually saying is that it's easier for a rope to go through the eye of a needle, not a camel. Well, that's a, it's a, it preaches well, but that's pure conjecture and there's no proof for it. Another way this often goes, probably the most famous, is that when the main gates of Jerusalem were shut, travelers had to use a small gate, often called the eye of the needle, and their camels couldn't pass through it unless all their baggage was removed first. Well, first of all, there's no evidence that sort of outer gate ever existed. In the city of Jerusalem, there are some gates that look sort of like that in the city, but they weren't built until the 8th century. And so it can't be Jesus referring to that. Another way focuses more on the spiritual attitude that like the camel getting on its knees to come through the gate, you had to humble yourself and enter God's kingdom unencumbered and crawling. Well, the problem with that is that you're still making the wrong person responsible for your salvation. It's still you. So what do those often preached interpretations all have in common? What they all have in common is that they're saying that salvation is hard, it's difficult, it's almost impossible, but it is humanly possible. That's what they all say. Because you could technically unravel a rope and get it through the eye of a needle one strand at a time. You could get a small camel to perhaps scrunch down small enough. In other words, you can be saved if you try really, really hard. So we don't accept those interpretations. The disciples burst out with this question, who then can be saved? And this is surprise number three, no one can be saved. No one can be saved. No one can do anything to merit God's favor. And if we just take the plain meaning of the text, you know what Jesus is doing? He's taking the biggest animal in Israel and the smallest opening in Israel and saying that's what it takes for a man to be saved, for a rich man to be saved. And by the way, he's probably borrowing from a Babylonian proverb that says it's easier for an elephant to go through the eye of the needle. They didn't have elephants in Israel. Camels were the biggest animals. So amazing when we take Scripture simply at face value how much uh, we get out of that. But he's saying a rich man being part of the kingdom is like taking an animal, a big one, a camel, and cramming it through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. 
And he answers their question in verse 26, with man, this is impossible because mankind is utterly incapable of reaching out to God. Now, I want to give you several reasons why salvation is impossible, why it can't happen. First reason, you were spiritually dead. You were spiritually dead. When Adam was in the Garden of Eden, God warned him, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because immediate spiritual death would occur. Genesis two sixteen and 17, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam didn't physically die that day, but he immediately was spiritually dead. He was cursed. And so Adam brought spiritual death to himself and to all mankind. Romans 5.12 says, just, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And Paul himself, he describes in, in terrible detail our spiritual deadness. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says in verse 1, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were unalive. You were unable to make decisions spiritually. In verse 3, he said that you did whatever your body wanted you to do. You did whatever your mind wanted you to do. You did whatever your will wanted you to do. Why? Because he says you were by nature a child of wrath, headed for hell like the rest of mankind, and there are no exceptions. King David confessed that he was doomed from the start. Psalm 51.5, he said, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, I was a sinner immediately. David wrote in Psalm 58, verse 3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. If you have children, you know they're born liars, every one of them. Jesus addressed our spiritual deadness when he stated that you must be born again in John 3, 7. And it's a passive verb, meaning it's something that has to happen to you, not something that you do. Someone else has to do this for you. And 1 Peter 1, 3 affirms this by saying that the saved have been caused to be born again. It's something you didn't do. You can't reach out to God because you were spiritually dead any more than a non-existent child can knock on his future mom and dad's door and say, would you please conceive me? I would like to be born. We can't reach out to God, secondly, because you, pol- you had polluted minds and infected hearts. You had polluted minds and infected hearts. And, and you know these verses, but they're, they're so key for us. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 8, 21, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Ecclesiastes 9, 3, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts. In John three nineteen, people love the darkness. Romans 8, 7 and 8, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Titus 1, 5 tells us that the minds and the consciences of mankind are defiled. They're made filthy. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 says that the unbeliever is incapable of understanding, incapable of getting out of their own polluted mind Ephesians four seventeen and 18 speaks of the futility of the mind, that you were darkened in your understanding and you had a hardened heart. You cannot reach out to God. There's a third reason we couldn't reach out to God. You were enslaved to sin and to Satan. 
you were enslaved to sin and to Satan. John eight forty four. Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Ephesians 2, 2, you follow the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan. 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26, you were in the snare of the devil. You were trapped to do his will. 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The Romans 6, 20, you were slaves of sin. And Titus 3, 3, you were slaves to all of your passions, all of your pleasures. You were a slave. And one more reason you couldn't reach out to God, you were unable to change yourself. You were unable to change yourself. The Christian faith is not about reforming yourself because you can't. Job 14, verse 4. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Jeremiah 13, 23, and we, we sing a hymn that has this line in it that says that as soon as a leopard can change its spots, then you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Jesus said in Matthew 17 that a diseased tree cannot bear good fruit. He said in John 6, 44, that no one comes to the Father, no one comes to me, rather, unless the Father who sent me draws him. In John 6, 65, he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So you can't reach out to God because you were spiritually dead. You had a polluted mind and infected heart. You were enslaved to sin and to Satan and you were unable to change yourself. This is what we sometimes call the doctrine of total depravity. And I think total is an understatement. And so when the disciples asked Who then can be saved? Jesus affirmed the doctrine of total depravity with man. This is impossible. And this brings us to our fourth surprise, and it's a pleasant surprise. After being told you have nothing to offer God, God insists you give up your idols. No one can be saved. Surprise number four. We'll just let Jesus tell us in verse 26. This is surprise number four. But with God all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. What is it that makes God, makes your salvation possible? He enables you to give up your own kingdom in order to inherit his. And that's what has to happen. Romans eight 14, you've been led by the spirit of God to be sons of God. In Acts 16, Paul was preaching to the women on the banks of the river in Philippi. And Lydia was listening, and the Lord opened her heart. John 1, 13, you were born again by the will of God. Titus 3, 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1, 23, you have been born again. 1 John 5, 4, you have been born of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you are a new creation in Christ. John 5, 21, the Son of God gives life to whom he will. It's all him. In Colossians 2, 23, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Christ, having been forgiven, having forgiven us all our trespasses. This is magnificent grace. This is incomparable grace. And to, not to be cliche, but this is amazing grace. It is amazing. And we see God's grace lived out in those who who were following Christ. Verses 27 and 28. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? 
Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He just assigned the apostles the future leadership of a future restored nation. And then Jesus makes a general announcement, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The rich young ruler wanted to be first, but he will be last because he will face this same Jesus who will ask him the question, why didn't you stop worshiping your money when I gave you the chance to? Why didn't you stop? And he'll be cast into the lake of fire in Revelation 20. But everyone who by the grace and the mercy of God, the gift of God, to be able to repent of all that you have put before God, of all that you have worshiped, they will be first. In other words, they will have eternal life. Eternal life. Now, I know this doesn't feel like a sermon on giving. We'll get there in a moment. But I told you that the whole message really has one main point. Jesus said in verse 21 that the rich man had to give up his riches because they were an idol. Jesus said in verse 24, it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. He said that with man, salvation is impossible. But here's the main point. Because salvation is only possible with God, you have threaded the needle, O camels of Christ. You have gone through. You have gone through. You have given up all of your idols to follow Christ. How do I know this? Because of your profession of faith and the change that's happened in you. You could not be a Christian if you hadn't done that. God plucked you out of your spiritual deadness and he did CPR on you, which stands for Christ provides redemption. Do you know what he did for you? Just a few verses back, beginning in chapter 18. In fact, Luke's gospel puts... chapter 18 and the account of the rich young man back to back. Look with me at Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verses one through four. This is what Christ did for you. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Is this saying that you have to be innocent like a child? No, because children aren't innocent. They're born in sin. But a child, a little child, listen, he has nothing to offer and he has eyes only for his parents. He has no idols. He has no power. He's utterly dependent and he'll follow his parents wherever they go. And you know what God did for you without you even asking. He made you like that little child so that you could thread the needle of the impossible. And he did it for you. And in fact, this is so astounding that 1 Peter 1.12 says that, that this is something that angels long to grasp and understand because you can't fully grasp what it means to be alive in Christ if you first weren't dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, what does that have to do with giving? Luke chapter 7 records a time that Jesus was invited to eat at the home of a Pharisee named Simon. You don't have to turn there. I'll just tell you the story. She was a woman of the city, a sinner who had sold her body for money. She had degraded herself 
down to the depths of depravity, and she found out that Jesus was going to be there. Now, this dinner would have been would have taken place outside in a courtyard. And at dinners where there were some prominent people there, it was sort of a spectator sport. They didn't really have sports to go to. You couldn't watch Netflix. And so you went to watch people's dinners and to listen to their conversations. And this woman, whom Jesus says at the end of the story, was made clean, was forgiven of all of her sins. The reason she came to Jesus was because of her gratitude to Christ, her, her overwhelming thankfulness for all that he had done in wiping her sins away. And she couldn't contain herself. She had never listened to a sermon on giving. She didn't go through any Sunday school classes. She didn't go through any discipleship classes. She was just desperate to respond to God's grace in gratitude. She was weeping upon the feet of Jesus. She was kissing his feet in thankfulness and in humility. She was drying his feet with her own hair. She was anointing his feet with very expensive ointment. In other words, her response to God's grace was to just give in extravagance. Let me give you two thoughts to send you off this morning. First, a practical reminder. We would love to see the gospel proclaimed. And I I love Grace Bible Church because when we tell the story of the woman who gave in extravagance because of her, her love for God and for her gratitude in God's grace, I know you understand that. And that is such a joy that that is very soft clay in our church. We would love to see the gospel proclaimed, to see our church body life expanded if possible to see Grace Bible Church have a church home which can even more effectively do the work of our Savior, the work of the head of the church. March 10th is our big kickoff day as we... ...the microphone to go off right when I mentioned Commitment Sunday. In our family, we've set up a little account that's specially for that Sunday and we, we put our nickels and dimes in there just gathering them and we're trying to see how much we can get in there before that day, we're going to bring a big gift, a special gift out of what God has already given you. And then we're also bringing our commitment cards that by faith, this is what we believe the Lord would have us to give as well. And so that's my, my first thought, just that practical reminder. But I want to finish off this morning. I want to connect for you last week's message on giving because of God's ownership and our thoughts today on giving because of God's grace. When Sylvia and I first got married, we had a little one-bedroom apartment that we rented, and it was our it was our castle. But for us, it, it was small, it was tiny, it was our space. We we started our married life there almost thirty-one years ago, and we loved to have guests in our home, and we made great memories there. And we would make the guests sleep on this little tiny uh, hide bed in our living room. I found out later one of my relatives nicknamed it the rack. I didn't know about that until years later. But it was our little place. We made great memories there, but we didn't own it. So, like many of you, we bought our first home. Again, we made great memories there. I finally had a lawn to mow. I found out later that was part of the curse. I didn't know it was that bad. We loved that little home. We were showing our kids a picture of it just the other day. But it still wasn't really ours. I mean, we had a deed that said it was ours, but God owned that. This current church building that we're in, some of you here literally put the nails in these walls. Some of you here put these walls up. 
tremendous memories, and, and the rest of us have enjoyed the fruit of that labor. For me personally, this room, this very spot, is the site of the greatest preaching experience I have ever enjoyed in my life, and that was to fall in love with a church in one day. That's never happened to me before. Right over here, we've seen so many people be baptized and make professions of faith that are public, and we've seen people from very, very older people to very, very younger people and, and everyone in between. I have seen people come to faith in Christ in room 160 back there. I've watched it happen. I've heard the gospel proclaimed in every room in this building. In this room alone, just since I've been at Grace Bible Church, we've enjoyed over 600 worship services together. We've had women's events and men's breakfasts and, and all kinds of different things in here. We, we built out, and now we use every corner of upstairs for children's ministry and, and, and youth ministry, but it isn't ours. It isn't ours. So if we buy or build a facility in which to further increase our effectiveness for Christ's church, guess what? That's not ours. It still isn't. In reality, because of God's ownership of all things, there is only one thing that you have ever owned one thing that is truly yours for which you can claim full credit, and that's the one thing that God came and took away from you. He wrenched it out of your hand, that one thing for which you can claim credit and that God took away from you that you own is your sin. I can't kiss the feet of Jesus. We can't anoint his feet with expensive ointment but we can give to the work of the kingdom in gratitude and in thankfulness for what he's done for us. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, neither silver nor gold would satisfy us. Nothing in this world will satisfy us except Christ. And so it is with profound gratitude for your grace that we have gathered this morning to offer our thanks. We were utterly unable to come to you. We were unable to respond to you unless you enabled us to do so. And so all that we have at this moment, all that we have a year from now, all that we have 10,000 years from now is all yours and all because of you. And you have so graciously, so lovingly allowed us to respond to you in love. You have given us ways to love you with our obedience, with our service, and certainly with our tangible gifts. And so, Lord, while we are aware that there is no perfect ministry on earth, even when Christ was on earth, his own treasurer, Judas, was stealing money. While there's no perfect ministry, we do serve a perfect God, and our reward for giving to you will be a perfect reward. And so, Lord, if if we respond for no other reason other than your grace, that's enough. That's enough because your grace truly is astounding and it truly is amazing. And for that, we give you thanks and we give you honor in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen.